Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Discipleship Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with this lesson. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Footsteps of the Messiah. We're on page 142, the rapture of the church. Let's again read John 14, 1 through 3, and then make notes out to the side as I move along. Let not your hearts be troubled. The idea is he had told them he is leaving, which means he's going to the cross, he's going to go ascend back into heaven and leave them as he goes back. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Let's talk about the Father's house. The Greek word is oikia, not oikos, but oikia, O-I-K-I-A, oikia. And it's in the feminine. It means house, obviously. But the uh, other word that's in the the uh, masculine is oikos, which always referred to the temple. But he uses the feminine, oikia, to refer to the Father's house in heaven. So, he, so many commentators will miss this and say, he was not talking about heaven, he's talking about the temple. No, no, he's not talking about it because he used the feminine, and so he's referring to the Father's house. I think you already know that, but that's the basis of why we believe that. Our many mansions. The idea there is dwelling places. It was a mistranslation by the King James. It should be dwelling places. The, the, the idea that these places are being prepared for the arrival of the bride. This is wedding language. This whole passage is wedding language. Okay? And this dwelling place is a, maybe what you would call a bridal chamber that the, the, the boy would build onto the father's house. So let me give you the wedding language so you can understand this wedding, or the, the wedding, uh, whatchamacallit, the wedding uh, event. And this is the symbolic language of it. When a boy wanted to propose to a young girl, he would go to their father's house and offer a, they would offer a cup of wine and have a deal done over a cup of wine. And he would offer and pay a bride price for uh, a guy's daughter. And they would cut the deal. They would drink the wine. And again, remember, the wine was drank the night before the crucifixion. And so the symbolic nature of this is already playing in the minds of the apostles. And then, um, obviously, he'd pay the bride price at that point in time. And then he would turn to the bride as she would be sitting there and say, I go to prepare a place for you. And then he would leave her. And she would be left there with the father at the house. The bride price had already been paid. And he would go back to the father's house and build a bridal chamber or an extra room onto the father's home. Because in the Jewish culture... You went to live with the, the boy's parents. That's where you live. The girl would always have to leave her family to live with the boy's family. And so he would build this bridal chamber next to the father's house. And that's what he's using with them, and they're recognizing that he's using wedding language in this. So he's basically telling them, in my father's house are many bridal chambers or places I'm going to prepare for you. And he goes, if it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you, a bridal chamber, an individual residence. So each person has an individual residence in the new Jerusalem. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I come again. 
So the idea here is once this is accomplished, then I will come again. What's being accomplished is the receiving of who he's going to receive into the new Jerusalem until that final count is done, and then he will retrieve the rest of the bride. Now, this ties in with Romans, and I believe it's chapter 11, I think. Yeah. Where the call is going out to the Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That statement means that there's a set number of Gentiles that will be saved. God already knows the amount. When that amount is saved, then he will come and get the rest of the bride that's alive. And so it's based on that amount. Only God knows that amount. And so when he's done preparing this all, then he comes back. So it ties in with that. Once this is accomplished, let's go to the next page. And I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, the Father's house, there you may be also. Okay, so then in a wedding, you were never told, as a bride, when he would come and fetch you. And you would have to be prepared all the time and be ready for him. He could come the next day, and two weeks from now, three weeks from now, a month, whatever. It depended on how long it took him to build the bridal chamber. Once he could finish the bridal chamber and the father gave the okay and the father would inspect the bridal chamber and the father would say, okay, you can now go get your bride. Then he would go immediately when that, that approval was given and go and fetch her. That could be in the middle of the night, the middle of the day, any time of day he can go get her. He would come with his groomsmen and they would blow trumpets, a shofar as they came. It could be in the middle of the night. Usually they did this in the middle of the night and they blow the shofar. And they would say, here comes the bridegroom, here comes the bridegroom, make way and get ready, here he comes. And she would have to have her maidens have their oil ready to go and trimmed and ready to go if it was at night. And then he would snatch her away at, at midnight and then they would, he'd whisk her away to the bridal chamber. Okay? Now this is the, the process. In the bridal chamber, he then has to find out or or, or judge her to see if she's clean. To judge her to make sure that she has no impurities. So he would take her back to the bridal chamber and make sure by sexual intercourse that she had not had sex before. And they would use the bed sheet to make sure that that was obvious. And this is how they did it. And if there wasn't blood then obviously she had, was not a virgin and she was deemed unclean. And so this is why you will see Paul continue to say, I am trying to make uh, present the bride clean and pure, always trying to purify her before her judgment. Well, the theological concept of the purification of the bridal chamber will be the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. That's what eventually makes us purified. As we stand before him and he judges our works, he will judge those things and those things that are worthy to keep, he will purify gold and, and, and silver and he will take away the dross and what is left from that will be purified. The wood, hay, and stubble is removed. So that's our purification when we go to the being the seed of Christ. So that must occur. So then once he did that, he would eventually come out the next day and say she's clean, and he would actually hold up the sheet and show the blood. 
And that meant to everybody she was a virgin. And then, then they would start a wedding uh, feast that lasted seven days. And they would, they would, they would have a party at the, the dad's house for seven days. Then, at the end of seven days, they would then have a public party and invite all the community there and all the family members there after the seven days. And they would have a public thing. So this went long. Obviously, it was a very long wedding. But do you see the picture of, of eschatology in this? So you purify the bride. Then we're in heaven seven years. Why seven years of hell is going on this earth? Revelation 19, the bride has made herself ready. She is clean and pure. She comes back with the, bride, the, the groomsmen. We obviously he goes to battle, but then the marriage feast of the Lamb is held on earth and everybody is invited to it. So do you see the symbolic nature and the whole the whole Jewish wedding is pictured in eschatology? So when he's talking to this way to them, they're instantly saying, Oh, you're saying your coming is going to be like a wedding. Yes, voice, that's exactly how it is. So they could get a good firm grasp about what he was saying. And so obviously the, the, uh, the, the, the last cup I talk about, you know, that cup of praise will be held on the first day of the kingdom, which is the public wedding. So anyway, that's what he says there. And uh, that, again, is speaking of rapture there. I'm coming to get you. It cannot refer to the second coming. There's no pronouncement of time, but the idea is I'm coming to take you to where I am. See, if it was second coming language, you're coming back with me is second coming language. When he says I'm coming to get you to take you where I am, that's rapture language. Okay? We go down to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 now in the page, on page uh, 143. Chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. This is a classic rapture passage. He says this, But we would not, uh, would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them that fall asleep, uh, that ye sorrow not, even as the rest who have no hope. But if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also have, uh, that are fallen asleep in Jesus will God, notice the phrase, bring with him. The idea of bringing with him, he is going to bring with... Who are, who, are, who are the ones that he's bringing with him? Those who have fallen asleep. Those who have died. So there's an indication that in the rapture, this is a rapture passage, that he is bringing those who are in Christ, which is a, a technical term, he'll use the term later on, with him. So who is he bringing with him? In Christ refers to the body of Christ. Not Israel, not Old Testament saints, but strictly those who are in Christ, in Messiah, which meant, we studied that last week, who have been, that happened at Pentecost and will happen at the end of the rapture. That's what considers uh, to be the body of Christ. So he's bringing with them to this location. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, so those who are still alive during this event, that are left unto the coming of the Lord, shall no wise perceive them that are fallen asleep. 
for the now here's the program of the rapture. And this is why this is different than the second coming. For the Lord himself, and the reason he says the Lord himself is that personally Jesus comes. It's, he's not sending a representative. He is not sending angels. It is him personally coming. And what shall he do? Shall descend from where? Heaven. That's John 14, thir- uh, 3. That's where he was at. And there's three simultaneous things that happen in the descent from the third abode. He will come with a shout. That shout is probably a reference to John 5.25. It is the Lord's voice. It is the Lord who calls the dead from the graves. And so that voice is the one who says, come up here. And he mentioned that in John 5.25. And then there's another voice that shouts simultaneously, or perhaps maybe after this, with the voice of the archangel. That perhaps is Michael the archangel. And what is happening is Paul is using military terms to say the general has issued the order. Now the commanders under the general are issuing the order out. Because in an army, you would issue the order out, and it would carry out among your commanders out into the ranks. So, Michael is basically repeating the order, and then says, and then another thing simultaneously that happens is the third thing, with the trump of God, and that's a, that corresponds with 1 Corinthians 15.52, Revelation 4.1, the trump of God is blown, so that's, this happens simultaneously, and then what happens, the first order of events, the dead in Christ will shall rise first, so the idea is the bodies, whether they're in the ground or they've been decayed or their bodies are in the seas, God reconstitutes their body and gives them a glorified body and they rise first. Then that we who are alive that are left shall together with them be caught up. That word caught up is harpazo in Greek. And anybody ever tells you, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. I know, but the concept is in the Bible. The word rapture is the Latin of translating the harpazo in Greek. Harpazo means to catch up, snatch away, violently, quickly. That's what harpazo, mean, harpazo means. So they use the word rapture in Latin. That's where the term rapture comes from. So you know, the people will say, well, the rapture is not talked about in the Bible. Yes, it is. Harpo- the concept is there. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the concept of the Trinity is there. Yeah. Snatches up with his claws. It's like, boom. Like an eagle comes down and snatches, uh, you know, like a trout from the water. It's, it's that, that's kind of simple. Boom. Real quick. We'll see a correspondence with this that it happens so fast. Paul will say to the Corinth church that it happens in the twinkling of an eye. And that's not the batting of an eyelash. That is, the Greek word is being used is that when you see somebody, you're like, who are you? And then all of a sudden you have instant recognition. Like, oh, it's that. It's that kind of concept. It's quicker than even batting an eye. It's, oh, it's instant recognition type of thing. It's that quick that this event happens. Notice where it's at. It's in the clouds, in the atmospheric, which is the first abode. 
God lives in the third heaven or the third abode. Then there's a second abode, which is space where the demonics are. And then you have the, the first abode, which is the atmospheric uh, around earth. So this event happens in the clouds or in the first abode or the atmosphere of earth. This is so different than the second coming. The second coming happens when he touches the ground on the Mount of Olives. There's a big difference here. So he calls up the dead. The church, are, if they're martyred, then the dead will rise first with them. Does that make sense, everybody? From the inception of the church, which was Pentecost, anybody that is part of the church is in Christ. From then to the rapture, the dead will be raised. Israel will not be raised at this time, neither will Old Testament saints. They will be raised after the second coming. We'll see that later on. So there are multiple resurrections. Another resurrection most people miss is the resurrection of the two witnesses. So what you, what you start to see that the broad concept called the first resurrection has multiple stages in it. You have the resurrection of Christ, resurrection of the church, resurrection of the two martyrs, uh, then you have the resurrection of the tribulation saints, and then the resurrection of Israel, or the Old Testament saints as well, prior to the kingdom start. So within that, what did I say? Uh, one, two, three, four, about five. Five different stages of resurrection that fall under the banner called the first resurrection. Now, the other category is called the second resurrection, and you don't want to be a part of that one. The second resurrection is the resurre- resurrection of the damned. Because they too will be resurrected out of hell, given a body, not a glorified body, and then thrown with that body into the lake of fire. There's actually two stages in this one. The first stage is the resurrection of Antichrist and the false prophet, resurrected right before the kingdom and thrown in the lake of fire for a thousand years before any other unregenerate goes in there, even before any fallen angels or demons go in there. So there's two stages. Antichrist, false prophet, go in there, and then at the end of a thousand years, the great white throne judgment, then all the damned, then all the fallen angels are judged at that point, and everyone else is thrown into the lake of fire. So two, first resurrection and second resurrection. If someone gets martyred in the tribulation, obviously they'll be resurrected at the end of the tribulation when Christ returns. Revelation 20 is your, your key for that. Copy in the class to meet the Lord in the air, the atmosphere air, and so shall we, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So the idea was comfort, comfort, comfort. Now, why, would, why were they needing comfort? Someone was telling them they were in the tribulation. Someone told them that they had missed the rapture. And they're stuck in the tribulation. They were undergoing some persecution. They thought they were in it. So someone had deceived them with this. And Paul is trying to calm them down and, and say, no, this is about comfort. You didn't miss it. You did. This is all the things that need to happen. Okay. The, the trump, if someone asks you, well, it says the trump of God. Well, it's all, they'll say to you, someone that's a mid-trib or post-trib type of individual will say, well, then that's referring to the trumpet judgments in Revelation. So it must be a mid-tribulational rapture. But the book of Revelation hadn't been written. It's so crazy when someone says that. It's like they're forgetting the timeline of when the books were written. The Corinth church, nor did the Thessalonians, have the book of Revelation. 
The book of Revelation was written in 95 AD. That's why the preterists want to argue that the book of Revelation wasn't written in 95 AD. What's the big deal about this? Because then what trump is he referring to? The book of Revelation wasn't written. What is the only trumpet these Jewish believers and have Gentiles in the church know of? It's a feast of trumpets. It's the only trumpet he could be referring to that they would know is a feast of trumpets. What, 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 what trumpet is that? He says, he'll say in Corinth, it's the last trump. The last trump, well, and the feast of trumpets is, and you want to write this out to the side here, I'll, I'll give it to you, is the Tekaya Gedola. T-E-K-I-A-H. T-E-K-I-A-H. Tekaya. And then Gedola is G-E-D-O-L-A-H. G-E-D-O-L-A-H. Tekaya Gedola is the great trumpet blast. And here's what I want you to do. If someone has an iPad, you can listen to it tonight, or you, when you go home, you type in that word, Tekaya Gedola, uh, Gedola, on the Feast of Trumpets, and you will get to hear what that trumpet blast sounds like in a Jewish service. And what will happen is, it'll go, they'll, they'll, it'll go through, da, 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 it'll just sound like it's like a machine rapid fire. Someone's doing this with their voice, with a ram's horn. Da, 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 and he just keeps going, 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 going. And then on the last one, they just, bam, and the guy just will hold the tune for as long as he can. And it's just, and just blaring. And these guys can go forever just blowing this ram's horn. It's the Tekaya de Gola, uh, uh, Gedola is that last, uh, and it just keeps going on and on and on. And if you type that in, you will hear what I'm talking about. That is the last trumpet of the Feast of Trumpets in the, in the, in the ceremony. That's what he's referring to, is, is that... That idea. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, every event prophetically that Christ has done has been fulfilled in the springtime feast. You still have the fall feast to keep uh, fulfilled. And, and perhaps if that is what we're, Paul is referring to, then the rapture will fulfill the feast of trumpets, perhaps. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it because the feast of trumpet is for Israel. And the rapture, then, and I know it's removing of the church, but it also could be a signal to Israel, it's time. Because Yom Kippur is behind that. And then the Feast of Tabernacles. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement, which will happen to Israel in the Tribulation. Feast of Tabernacles represents the Kingdom Age. So, it's perhaps, that's what Paul's referring to. I think it's the best educated guess. And I, it, it makes sense. If, it, if, if you tie it together, I don't want to get into things where people are saying, well, the rapture is only going to happen in September. You're, that's, that's not what we're, we're trying to get at because now we're going to get into date setting. But anyway, it definitely can't refer to any trumpet blasts in the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation hasn't been written at this point in time. Any questions on that? Will we hear it? Yes. Will we hear the voices? Yes. But I think in a lot of ways, like, if there's unbelievers around, it's kind of what 
what happened to the Apostle Paul or sometimes when Jesus was there in the, in the court, in the temple, the believers heard the voice of God, the bat kol, and even Paul, he heard Jesus talking to him, saw Jesus in the vision, but the people that were with Paul didn't hear it. They only heard, they heard sounds, but they didn't hear the actual voice. Uh, maybe thunder, they, they heard thunder or something like that. I think it'll be like that. If we hear a bat kol, which would be the voice of Jesus, I think we would hear him. Perhaps he says, he says, come up here, but they won't. It might sound like thunder to them or something like that. Just, I think, based on precedent. But remember, the rapture is secret. It's not visible. The second coming is not secret. The second coming says all the world will see him. And in the rapture, no one sees him except us as we go to meet him in the atmosphere, which probably above the planet somewhere, probably north. Um, so because in Kita it happens so instantaneously, we just disappear. And they don't know what happened. It's not a gradual thing. Okay, any other questions about that? Pretty clear? Um, let's see, one more thing I wanted to show you. Page 145, and then we'll, we'll take a break after this. Why must there be a rapture of those who are alive? That's the question. The dead can enter heaven right now. If you're in Christ and you die, your soul will go into heaven. And everybody knows that. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Why can't we, if we're alive, why can't God just take us right into heaven as we are? That's right. And so Paul's going to answer that right there of, of the problem that we all face right now. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's not a soteriology issue. That's a, a problem with our bodies. We cannot go into heaven right now with the current body we have because it is sin-tainted. It is polluted. The sin nature is attached to the body, and that's why we're dying. That's why we're getting older. That's why we get sick, is the sin nature is truly killing us. And therefore, Paul will say, flesh and blood cannot go into heaven, basically, is the idea. Neither does corruption inherit corruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, here's what was not said in the Old Testament, but is going to be told in the New Testament. We all shall not sleep but we shall all be changed. That's why we need to be changed, because where our, our bodies need to be changed. Dead people that are in Christ, their bodies are in the ground, so their soul can go into heaven. They're not taking their bodies and the sin nature with them. Once you die, the sin nature dies with your body. So their soul is freed of that. That's why the souls can go to heaven. But they're in a soulish experience in heaven right now, not a bodily experience. But we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. That's the, actually the recognition of somebody. At the last trump, I think that's the, what we talked about. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality... Then shall come to pass the saying which is written. 
Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that you shall labor, uh, you, uh, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Okay. So that's because, that's why we have to be changed in a twinkling of eye before we go into the, to the third abode. Okay. I want to end right there, but I want, I want to pose a question to you. The new body, we get some idea what the new body is like from our Lord's body. And, and one of the things you don't want to go too far, because sometimes we see aspects of deity, but sometimes we don't know if it's deity or it's his glorified body. <clears throat> when the Lord is conversing with him after the resurrection about his body, and he says, come and touch me, you will see that flesh and bone... That I'm flesh and bone. And that's very interesting what he said. Did you catch that? Typically, how do you say it? we're flesh and blood? He says, I'm flesh and bone. We will not need blood in the glorified body because it is, it is a spiritual body. What does sacrifice call for? Blood. Why? What did God say is blood, or is in the blood? The life is in the blood. Our life force, so to speak, is in the blood that is in our bodies. In the new body, we do not possess blood because we have a spiritual body. It's flesh and bone, but the energizing life force of that body is the Holy Spirit, not blood. Hence, we are not dependent on food and water to survive. The life force exists within us through the power of the Holy Spirit, not blood anymore. It is the Spirit of God that keeps us alive. So our new bodies will not possess blood, which allows us to be able to live forever. See, Adam, because he was flesh and blood, had to eat of the tree of life, right? And that sustained his life. But we live by the Spirit in the new, in the new glorified body. Uh, the, the conjecture, I think it's a very good conjecture based on what we see with the angels. They, they, they're not omnipresent. It obviously takes them a while to get to certain locations. Like it did that one angel, um, was it Gabriel, I think it was, that said, hey, I'm sorry I'm delayed. I was delayed 21 days getting here. Obviously, he moves through time and space at a very rapid pace, but nonetheless, there is a a duration of time it takes him to travel. I think in that sense, we will be like that. We will have the ability to fly in that sense of, of being able to transport ourselves back and forth because in the kingdom, that's what we do. The New Jerusalem is is kind of a satellite city, and we go back and forth from Earth to the satellite city as we manage this world for the Lord um, and so, but our home is the heavenly abode, and we go back and forth and have the ability to travel like that. Yeah, because we, we do eat of the tree of life in there. We drink of the water of life. We do eat and drink, um, but it's not for, um, it's not for nourishment to keep our bodies sustained. It's for, like Tom said, it's fellowship. It's very symbolic, and eating a meal with somebody is always symbolic of fellowship or, um, 
uh, uh, relationship in, in the, the Bible. So I think you, you see that. Did you notice things about Jesus? No one recognized him. But they knew his voice. But they didn't recognize him. So what does that indicate about the glorified body, about you? You're going to look a lot better. You got it. You got it. It's that simple. You will be the perfect you. Your genetics will be absolutely perfect. Right now we have gaps in our genetics. And uh, some more than others, obviously. (laughs) But think about your DNA being perfect and all your flaws being removed and you having a perfect DNA strand energized by the Spirit. Of course you wouldn't look like how you look like here. Even in your prime, even at age 21, man, when you look your best, you're not even close to what you will look like to the full plan of your DNA. You, you, you're not even close to that in your prime. So that's why I think we, at first, will, if you look in yourself in a mirror and the glorified body, you're like, who's that? Oh, that's me. That's how I'm supposed to look? And so that's what caught the disciples off guard. He looked different until he heard his voice. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Anchor Discipleship. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has two other podcasts. The first is called The Anchor Sunday Sermons and is filled with pastors' Sunday messages. And the second is The Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. If you enjoy this message and would like to hear them, Please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services. Rock Harbor Church also has a print-to-order merchandise store. You can shop for Rock Harbor merch at rockharborchurch.store. Support for all three of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Keep looking up for our Redemption Dolls near. God bless.